You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John eleven twenty three. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Let's bow together. Our Father, we are thankful again for your word, for all it does for us, and sanctifying effect upon the people of God. And as we have gathered here together to worship you and to listen to your word, we pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher. We believe that when your word is rightly preached, that your voice is truly heard. And so we pray that you would edify and equip your people through this passage of scripture, that you be glorified in and through your church. That is our desire. That is our concern. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John, in John's Gospel, we have seen him argue in every conceivable way and from almost every conceivable angle for the deity of Christ. Every discourse is an argument or a presentation of the deity of Christ in some way. Every miracle serves to highlight the deity of Christ in some way. Jesus' claims, he is constantly bringing back his hearers to his claim to be the Son of God, to his claims for deity, and, and it is on every page of John. And one of the dangers that we face in Focusing so much on the deity of Christ is to fall into the trap of somehow thinking that his deity insulated him from the harsh realities of life. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap of thinking, well, he, of course, of course he didn't face what I faced. He, he was God. Of course he lived a sinless life. He was God. Of course he faced temptation. He was God. I'm not God. Of course he faced hostile enemies. Of course he always comported himself rightly. Of course he, he was able to deal with life. He was God and I'm not. And sometimes we can think that the deity of our Lord somehow uh, isolated him from all of the harsh realities that it meant to live in this world to take upon himself human flesh. And we sometimes forget that being God, he was also fully man. And that meant that he was subject to all of the non-sinful weaknesses and frailties that you and I are subject to. He knew what it meant to live with hostile enemies. He knew what it meant to be slandered. He knew what it meant to be misunderstood. He experienced pain. He experienced suffering. In Hebrews chapter 2, he was perfected as our Savior. He was perfected or made perfect. 
through those sufferings. Not that he wasn't morally perfect, but the perfection there has to do with a, a perfection for this purpose of being our Savior. The perfection there is, a, a, is, a, is the idea of a maturity. He is the perfect Savior because he suffered everything that we suffer. As I said, all of the non-sinful experiences of mankind he likewise experienced. And John is careful, even though he's arguing for the deity of Jesus, he is also very careful to remind us of his humanity. And we get these glimpses of his humanity throughout John's gospel, like in chapter 4. When he came into Samaria to speak with the woman at the well, he sat down by the well. Why? Because he was wearied from his journey. And he asked the woman at the well for a drink of water. He was thirsty. And he sent the disciples into a nearby town to buy food. So we know that the Lord experienced those non-sinful human experiences of being tired, being hungry, and being thirsty. And we also know that he suffered physical pain. We get a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus in this passage that I just read to you. The compassion of our Lord in chapter 11, verse 35, when John says that Jesus wept. And we see here some very real human emotions that Jesus experienced. And his compassion in that verse 35 where Jesus wept. So today we're going to be looking at verses 27 through verse 37. I know that is kind of a large chunk of Scripture, especially from what we are used to. And it's not that I'm just trying to get through the Gospel of John before I die, which I am, but I'm also trying to uh, handle chunks of passages kind of as they present in sort of a natural uh, breakdown. So that's what we're looking at today, verses 27 through 37. We've come to the point now where Jesus has arrived in Bethany. He is outside the city. He doesn't come into the city. Uh, Martha met him there and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus assured her that his, her brother would rise again. What he meant by that and what she thought he meant by that are two entirely different things. So she confesses her very orthodox Jewish belief that I know my brother will rise again on the last day. And what she didn't understand was that the resurrection is not just an event that God has planned. It is a person that God has provided. And Jesus himself is that resurrection and the life, which he says in verses 25 and 26. And he ends that with where we ended last week with asking Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am this person who is the resurrection and life? Do you believe that by faith in me you have eternal life? Do you believe that by faith in me you too will rise again with your brother on the last day? Do you believe that I am the one who one day will speak and all of mankind will rise and stand before me? Specifically to Martha, do you believe that the one standing before you who himself will one day raise a world of men that have been dead for ages is able to raise one man who has been dead for four days. Do you, Martha, believe this? And now in verses 27 through 37, we're going to take a glimpse at three people in this passage. First, Martha and her confession in verse 27. Then Mary and her coming to see Jesus in verses 28 to 32. And then Jesus and his compassion. So the confession of Martha, the coming of Mary, and then the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus in verses 33 through 37. Let's look first of all at Mary's confession in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Let me ask you a question. What is Martha most known for? Martha, the, the sister of Mary, what is she most known for? When you think of Mary and Martha, what do you think of? What is her most notable characteristic? You probably think of the time in Luke chapter 10 when they were sitting down in the home and she had prepared a dinner, and Martha was there, and Mary was there, and Jesus had arrived, and Mary was sitting sort of listfully, 
contemplatively at the feet of Jesus, learning and soaking it in and listening to Jesus teach. And Martha was up in her busy neglect of everything else, making arrangements and preparations. And she even protested to the Lord, Lord, doesn't it concern you at all that I'm doing all of this work myself and my sister is lazily sitting at your feet? I'm paraphrasing. And then she asked Jesus, why don't you command her to get up and help me out with this? That's probably what Martha is most known for. I think it's unfortunate that Martha, Martha is not most notably known for this confession that she gives in verse 27. Because this is one of the most doctrinally sound and profound confessions of faith and belief that you read of anywhere in Scripture, certainly in the Gospels. It is profound in its doctrine, and it is a stunning confession of her faith in the Lord Jesus. I kind of wish that Martha was not known for her busy neglect of Jesus, her type A personality, but for this confession that she gives in verse 27. It is very doctrinal. But let me ask you this question. Does she actually answer his question? What was his question? Verse 26, do you believe that I am the resurrection of life? I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's physical resurrection. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's eternal life. Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the one through whom belief in me will you, you will be provided with physical life beyond the grave as well as eternal and spiritual life? Do you believe this? We might have expected her answer to sound something like this. Yes, Lord, I do believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I do believe that you will give me physical life after the grave. And I do believe that by believing in you, I have eternal spiritual life. That's what we'd expect. But what does she say? Does she say anything about the resurrection and the life at all? Verse 27, she says to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. There's no resurrection, there's no mention there of the resurrection and the life and his a specific answer to his specific question. And I ask myself, why is that? I don't think that she is avoiding the issue, but I think that she is confessing because she does say, yes, I do believe this. I have believed, but she is going beyond that. Not only does she believe that he is the resurrection and the life, but she confesses something even, even greater than that, if it's possible, but three very doctrinal statements concerning his whole person. Look at those three statements. She believes, first of all, that he is the Christ. Verse 27, I have believed. By the way, that's past tense. He asks her present tense, do you believe currently this? And she says, past tense, I have believed this. Not that she no longer believed in the present, but she is saying, I have believed this for quite some time, and here is what I have believed about you, in spite of the hostile Jewish reaction, here is what I have believed about you for a long time. And the death of my brother, by the way, has not changed how I feel about you, what I believe about you. Whatever his sovereign purposes in this were, it does not affect at all what she believed about Jesus. So I have believed, past tense, and currently she did believe three things. That he was the Christ. Second, that he is the Son of God. And third, that he is the one who comes into the world. All three of those statements are significant. It's very doctrinally robust theology that she is articulating there. First of all, I have believed that you are the Christ. And by that, she simply means I have believed that you are the Messiah of Jewish expectation. That is like back in chapter 1, I think it's verse 41, where Nathaniel grabs Peter and says to him, we found the Messiah. That's what she's saying. I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the one, the son of David, the one whom the prophets predicted. You are the one that we are expecting. You are the one that we are anticipating. You are the Jewish Messiah. She believes that. Now listen, she probably did not have as full and robust of an understanding as what Messiah meant as you and I do looking back on the situation. There were certain Jewish expectations of the Messiah that are kind of playing in here, but she is basically saying whatever her expectations of the Messiah were, right or wrong, she believes that he is the one. Second, I believe that you are the Christ or the, and the Son of God. That's the second one. I believe that you are the Son of God. 
Now back in chapter 1, John the Baptist had said that Jesus was the Son of God. Nathaniel had said that Jesus was the Son of God. I said Nathaniel earlier, wasn't it? It wasn't Nathaniel that grabbed Peter, it was Andrew. Nathaniel said that you are the Son, Jesus is the Son of God. In a Jewish context, that means more than just you have a special relationship with God, as if all of us are sons of God. That claim to be the Son of God was what got Jesus in trouble and accused of blasphemy. That's why they wanted to stone him. So in this context, it has all of that significance that Jesus has packed into this when he claimed to be the Son of God. She is saying that she believes in his full deity. That's what that would mean to a Jewish woman saying that. Not just that he has a unique relationship with God, but that he is uniquely the Son of the Father and so has equality with the Father. And then the third one is that he who comes into the world, and that's a confession of his preexistence. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that you are the one whom the Father has sent into the world to do the Father's will. Now, what's unique about all three of those confessions, all three of those doctrinal statements, is that all three of those things are things which Jesus has said of himself on previous occasions. All three of those statements are, are claims that Jesus has made of himself. And this is what a Christian believes, by the way, and this is the, the quintessential Christian testimony. A Christian does not believe things about Jesus that he never believed of himself. A Christian does not believe things about Jesus that he never claimed. We don't make stuff up about Jesus. A Christian is somebody who says, I believe that what Jesus Christ has said is true. And I am placing my faith, I am banking my eternity on that. So we believe things about Jesus, which Jesus himself has claimed. She doesn't make up any doctrinal content here. She is simply saying to him, everything you have said to be true about yourself is what I believe. So if he claims to be the resurrection and the life, does she believe that? Of course she would. That is what he claimed of himself. I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah. He had claimed that. I believe that you are the Son of God. He had claimed that. I believe that you are the one whom the Father has sent into the world to do his will. And he had claimed that. All of those things are things which Jesus has claimed. And she is simply affirming that she believes all of that. Everything you say about yourself, I believe is true. Now here's something significant to remember. If you ever run across somebody who denies something about Jesus that Jesus claimed or claimed was true of himself, you are not dealing with a believer. The essence of Christian belief is to say concerning anything that Jesus Christ says, I believe that. If he affirms it, I affirm it. You run across somebody who says, well, I know Jesus made that claim, but I'm not quite sure. Or I don't quite believe that. Or maybe I wouldn't have said it that way. You're not dealing with a believer. A believer is someone who says, if he says it, I will believe it, and I will bank my eternity on it, and I will obey it. That's Christian belief. That's Martha's confession. Now look at second, Mary's coming to meet Jesus. Verse 28. When she, that is Martha, had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now what's interesting is we don't actually have a record of Jesus telling Martha to go fetch Mary. And that's not to say that Mary, Jesus didn't tell Martha to go get Mary. It's just to say that when that Martha went, John is recording the, the essential details and leaving us to fill in the blanks. But at some point in this conversation earlier, Jesus had said to Martha, now go fetch Mary. Now Martha went back and she got Mary and she said to him secretly, the teacher is here. Now here's what's interesting about that, that word. And I just want you to notice it real quick. Do you notice that you have one woman referring as to Jesus as a teacher to another woman? That is significant. It's a significant little detail for this reason. Back in that day, men did not consider it noble or right to teach women anything. They didn't address women. They didn't, they didn't have women disciples. They didn't have women students. They didn't teach women at all. They had a very low view of women. But notice that this woman refers to Jesus as a teacher and does so to another woman. The teacher is calling for you. 
That's significant for this reason. Whatever the Jewish view of women was back then, Jesus did not share it. He did not share a low view of women. He did have women disciples, women students who learned. And when he taught, he taught to men and to women. Jesus and his conduct toward women forever elevated the status of women to a a level that they had never enjoyed in any culture or any society or any nation before that at any time. Christianity is uniquely a religion that elevates the women to an ontological, not role, not function, but an ontological equality, an equality of being with men. Jesus and the disciples did that, and no culture, no religious leaders had ever done that up to that time. In our society today, we have we are living off of the remnants of a Christian worldview. We treat women well today and as equals today in our society and our culture because we have been informed by a Christian worldview. But I will tell you this, the more our culture, and I think you can mark this down as a, not as a prophecy prophecy, but as my anticipation, the more our culture and our society begins to jettison the Christian worldview and replace it with secular humanism, the worse off women will fare, always. And you know why? Because we are no longer informed by a Christian worldview. And every culture that treats women well today does so because they have a history of a Christian worldview and they're still living off the fumes of that. But as we jettison that, it will get worse and worse for women because we reject that ontological equality that Jesus taught and that the Bible teaches. Women are equal, not in function, not in roles, but in being. They are equal. So the teacher is calling for you. Now look what she says in verse 29, or what John says in verse 29. And when she heard this, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was coming to the tomb to weep there. Now you may wonder, why did Martha tell Mary secretly, the teacher is here? Do you wonder that? Why secretly? Who are the Jews who are in Mary's house consoling Mary when Martha arrives? Who were they? I suggested weeks ago... This is likely, since John uses the term Jews, not just to refer to anybody who is of Jewish descent, but in his gospel, it's kind of a technical term that he uses to describe the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish nation. If that's how John is using it here in chapter 11, then what he means by Jews in this context is the same hostile Jews who heard him in chapter 8 claim to be the I am, before Abraham was I am. It's the same hostile Jews who saw him or heard of him healing the man born blind outside the temple. It's the same Jews who who quizzed the man born blind and quizzed the man born blind's parents and then quizzed the man born blind again and then listened to Jesus give him the good shepherd discourse where he called them on the carpet for being false shepherds and proclaimed that he is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. These would be the same hostile Jews who heard Jesus say, I and the Father are one. These would be then the same hostile Jews who picked up stones to stone him at the end of chapter 10. The same Jews. So why would Martha go in to Mary and say, the teacher is here, the teacher is here. Mary gets up and leaves, and the Jews who were there thought that Mary was going to the tomb to weep, which would be probably their expectation. What are you going to do when both the hostesses of the house leave? Do you sit around and do nothing in somebody else's house, or do you get up and follow them? Well, these Jews got up and followed them. Now, it probably was not Martha's intention to draw the Jews, who she would have understood to be hostile to Jesus, out to the place where Jesus was. They thought they were going to the tomb, and when they showed up, guess who was waiting for them? Jesus was waiting for them. And though it was not Mary and it was not Martha's intention to draw them out to where Jesus was, it was the intention of God to draw out these wicked and unbelieving and hostile Jews to that place because they were going to see a miracle. Now look at verse 30. Where are we at? 32. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, John Calvin, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, suggests that Mary's posture there is reflective of an attitude of worship, that she fell down at the feet of Jesus in worship. I don't think it's worship that she's doing. She's weeping. You see that in verse 33. She's weeping. Why would she fall down at the feet of Jesus? Well, you can imagine this scenario. For months, well, for not for months, for maybe a week or more, she has been watching her brother deteriorate with this illness, and she has hoped and her desire was that Jesus would show up and heal her brother. This was her anticipation. This was her expectation. She had sent somebody to Jesus to fetch him so that he could come back and heal Lazarus. And you can well imagine that as in the days progressed, one day piled upon another, and they're sitting alone in their home, that every time the door knocked, she would think to himself, get her hopes up. Maybe that's Jesus. Open the door and it's not Jesus. And again, finally her brother dies. And what do she and Mary sit, or she and Martha sit around and talk about? They sit around and talk about if Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. If Jesus had only come in the providence of God, however this worked out, if Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. Notice that she says that, and it's verbatim what Martha had said earlier in verse 21. If you had been here, Lord, our brother would not have died. That's what these two women had sat around and talked about for days. If Jesus shows up, he's going to heal Lazarus. Jesus didn't show up. And then when Lazarus died, they sat around and discussed, if the Lord had been here, our brother would not have died. So now she comes out to see Jesus. I think all of the expectation of the last several weeks is heaped upon her. All of the anticipation, the emotion of seeing Jesus and realizing it's just four days late. If he had been here four days, it was so close. And she is the one who is overcome by grief. And so when she sees Jesus, she falls down at his feet and collapses there and confesses the same thing that Martha had. The same expression of weak and inadequate faith. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does Mary not understand? The same thing Martha did not understand, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that he who can raise all men who have been dead for ages can raise one man who's been dead for four days. That's not a problem for him. But she didn't get that. And the point of the miracle is to demonstrate that very thing. So that's the coming of Mary. Now look, thirdly, at the compassion of Jesus. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, that English translation, he was deeply moved in spirit, is kind of an awkward and somewhat weak translation of a very difficult Greek word. When you read that in the English, what do you picture in your mind? You probably picture something like this. Jesus standing there looking at Mary weeping, looking at the Jews weeping, and then going, my heart is just moved. It's weak. My heart is so sensitive to this. That's not quite it. And I don't mean any sense of irreverence. The word that is translated there, and I didn't write it down so I could give it to you, but the word that is translated there, deeply moved, is a word that literally means to snort like a horse. It is outside of this context, because it's used in verse 38, Jesus again being deeply moved within. Outside of this context, it's only used three times in all of the New Testament, all three times in the Gospels. Now listen, it is used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 30, and it's translated there as sternly warned. When Jesus healed two uh, lepers, he said to them, he sternly warned them not to tell anybody. It's used in Mark chapter 1, verse 43, and it's translated there, sternly warned. And then it is used in Mark chapter 14, verse 5, of a woman being scolded, and it's translated scolded. The word has the idea and the connotation of being angry, indignant, and upset about something. So now you get the picture. Jesus inwardly snorted like a horse. And the idea of sternly warning something, scolding somebody, and being angry at something. And then John uses the word, and he was troubled in verse 33, which more, which adds even a greater sort of sense of this righteous indignation. It's not Jesus 
his heart was broken. Not yet. That's verse 35. But in verse 33, he is angry about something. He is upset about something. Now, if you did something, and I went, you ever done that with your kids? That's the sense of it. It is a deeply moved sense of indignation over something. Not a sinful anger. Not a sinful frustration. God can be angry and He can be righteously indignant about something. And Jesus in His humanity here is deeply moved in His spirit in a sense that He was angered about something. What was it that angered Jesus? It doesn't say, it suggests, but let me give you three things from the context that He may have been angry about. First, he may have been angry simply at the unbelief. The unbelief of Mary and of Martha. He has heard both of them say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There is a certain degree of unbelief that is present in that statement. A certain lack of faith that is evident there. And it may be that Jesus is simply indignant over that. He sees their lack of unbelief. And almost as if to say, with with such dim eyes of faith, do you not get it? And I don't say that as if to suggest that if I had been there, that I would have got it. I think the Lord would have snorted at me as well. Because I think I would have been just as blind to the reality of what we were dealing with in that situation. It could be a lack of belief, a lack of true, genuine faith that he has heard both Martha and Mary express. There might be a second thing going on. It may be that Jesus was angry at sin and the effects of sin. That he sees the death, he sees the tomb, he realizes that Lazarus is dead, he sees the the moral wreck that sin has made, and the unbelief that is there. He's just frustrated with the effects of sin and the curse itself. That's possible. It may be also that Jesus is angry at the excessive weeping of the women. You notice it says, and this is what I think is going on, when he saw Mary weeping and the Jews weeping. And the word that is used for weeping there means a loud lamentation, a wailing. Have you seen Jews standing at the wailing wall? Wailing? There's a reason they call it the wailing wall in Jerusalem. It's because they go there to wail. Have you ever seen people who mourn and it's this excessive mourning, this loud lamentation, the, not like a Muslim call to prayer, but more like the, just this loud lamentation and wailing over something? That's the word that is used. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, wailing, and loudly lamenting, and the Jews who had come out with her weeping and wailing and loudly lamenting, He was angry with that. It is wrong for people who have hope to weep like we have no hope. That's sinful. Now, there's nothing sinful in weeping itself, but weeping and wailing, and wailing like you have no hope, like you do not understand the one in whose presence you stand, to wail and carry on like that. Huh. You sense that indignation? That's what I think is going on. He snorted like a horse within There was something angry here that angered him in a righteous sense. Catch it. Not a sinful sense. Nothing sinful about this in any way. But he was righteously indignant over something in this situation. I think it was the excessive wailing and weeping that Mary was going through and that the Jews were going through. So look what verse 34 says. He was troubled within and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, if you're ever playing a Bible trivia game, you're going to want to remember John 11:35 because that is the shortest verse in all of your English Bible. It's not the shortest verse in Greek, by the way. There is a shorter verse in Greek. But in our English translation, John 11:35 is the shortest verse in your Bible. But that's not the most significant thing about John 11:35. 
The most significant thing about John 11.35 is the glimpse at the humanity and the compassion of Jesus that is present there. Now, if he is righteously indignant over the weeping and the wailing of Mary and Martha and the Jews who have come with him, why then would he weep in verse 35? Well, there's something different in verse 35. That is an entirely different word that is translated wept there or, or weeping there than is used anywhere else in this passage. In fact, it's the only place in all of the New Testament where this word is used. It's a very rare word. The word that describes Mary and uh, the Jews weeping is the loud lamentation and the wailing and the carrying on and all of that. This word just simply means to burst into tears and to do so in a quiet and silent fashion. He wept. Now, I take great comfort and delight in the fact that my Savior can weep. I delight in that. That to me is a good thing to know. That to me softens the image of Christ and it makes me to realize that my Savior, who is both God and man himself, was not insulated from the harsh realities of life. Why is he weeping? What is he weeping over? And just as with the indignation that is expressed in verse 33, a lot of people have suggested different things that might have caused Jesus to weep. Some have suggested it was the sin. He looks at the death. He looks at the destruction that has come upon this family and the loss of a good friend. And he is simply weeping himself over the results of death and the curse. So here's the Lord of life who is righteously indignant and himself emotionally uh, impacted by the fact that death has come into his creation and that it has done this to people that he loves. That's a possibility. It's also possible that he is weeping here over the unbelief of the hostile Jews, which is going to be expressed in a couple of minutes. The unbelief of these hostile Jews, in which case this is weeping similar to how he wept over the city of Jerusalem because of their unbelief. So he sees the hostile Jews and realizes they still remain unbelieving, and this saddens him. Or third, it's possible that he simply is sympathetic with his friends, Martha and Mary. And that he is entering into, in a sympathetic way, he is entering into their emotion and understanding that and experiencing that, and that this truly saddens him as much as it saddens them. I think that that's what's going on. I think that this is the Lord experiencing and understanding in a compassionate and sympathetic way what it feels like to lose somebody close to you. Have you lost somebody close to you? A child? A spouse? A parent? A grandparent? A good friend? Do you think that the Lord doesn't understand what that is like? I think He does understand what that is like. I think that He sees Mary, and He sees Martha, and He sees this whole situation, and the reality of death, and the loss, and all of that, genuinely caused Him to weep. He was sympathetic. Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews chapter 2, which we read earlier, He was made to be like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those two, those two passages express this reality. The Lord of life became a man and experienced flesh and blood and experienced life here so that he can sympathize with those whom he saves. He is able to sympathize with us as much as he is able to save us. He is a perfect savior and he is a perfect sympathizer. I believe that it impacts greatly the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sufferings of His people. You and I are able to enter into one another's sufferings. It is not, 
it is not unrighteous to suffer and to weep and to cry over things. Uh, this should remind us that suffering and, and, and grief itself is not sin. It can be, but it's not. If Jesus can weep and it not be sin, it is possible for you and I to weep and it not be sin. There are situations and circumstances where it is completely fitting to shed tears and to weep over something that has happened. That does not mean that all weeping is unsinful. Because some weeping can be sinful. There is a weeping that draws attention to me and tries to elicit compassion and to elicit sympathy and to, and to make it about me and what I am experiencing. That type of weeping can be sinful. But to simply share grief with somebody, to, to weep with those who weep, is as noble as to rejoice with those who rejoice. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, Jesus was acquainted with sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. He knew sorrows and he knew grief. He is a sympathetic and compassionate Savior. He is, he is touched by our infirmities, as it were, because he knows them. Now look at verse 36 and 37. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Verse 36 is, is their understanding of why he was weeping. The Jews who watched this, they saw Jesus weeping, and what was their take on the situation? Their take was, it's because he loved him. It's because Jesus loved Lazarus, he loves Mary, he loves Martha, he loves this family, they were good friends, and so he is experiencing this as well. So their read on the situation was that the weeping, that Jesus wept, that it was due to his love for Lazarus. But look at verse 37. Verse 37 is a curious verse. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Now there are two radically different ways of understanding verse 37, and it all depends on the tone in which you say these words. Some suggest that verse 37 is their expression of faith or belief. And it would be similar then to what Mary says in verse 21, or what Martha says in verse 21, and what Mary says later on. If he had been here, he could have kept this man from dying. And that's simply, they would say, the Jews saying, if Jesus had been here, he has the power to heal a man born blind. Certainly, if he has the power to heal a man born blind, he could have kept this man from dying. Right? That's an expression of their belief in his, his power, his ability, his healing ability. But verse 37 could also be read in a mocking tone as if to say it like this. Verse 37, could not this man, if he has the ability to open a blind man's eyes, couldn't he have kept him from dying? And the implication is, if he truly loved Lazarus, then why is he dead? If he truly loved Lazarus, and if he truly has the ability to heal Lazarus, then why is this man dead? And it is an attack upon the character of Christ to suggest that the reason Lazarus is dead is either because Jesus did not love him or he did not have the ability to heal him. And the same attack is used by atheists today, by the way, with the whole issue of evil in our present world. Atheists will say evil exists. If God is all good, he would want to deal with evil. If God is all powerful, he would be able to deal with evil. So since evil exists, then either God is not all powerful or he is not all good or both. Therefore, the Christian God doesn't exist. Now, it's a leap of logic to come to that conclusion. and It's not at all rational or logical, but atheists use the same argument today with the existence of evil. If Jesus had the ability to heal Lazarus, he would have. If he truly loved Lazarus and he had the ability, he would have healed him. So since Lazarus is dead, either Jesus didn't love him or he wasn't able to heal him. Now, there's a reason why Lazarus is dead. Does it have anything to do with Jesus not loving him? Does it have anything to do with Jesus not being able to heal him? Nothing at all. There is a reason higher than his love for Lazarus and higher than his ability to heal Lazarus. There's a reason he allowed Lazarus to die. What is the reason? 
for the miracle. The reason is the glory of God. And that answer, by the way, the glory of God is not only the answer to why did Jesus, who had the ability and wanted or could have healed Lazarus, why did he allow him to die? That answer, the glory of God, is also the reason why God allows evil into this world. Why does God allow evil into his creation? It's because of his glory. It's the same reason. And we'll look at that next time we're together. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have given to us salvation in your Son, and we truly hope upon him and in him for the resurrection and for the life that is to come. We are grateful for that salvation which is done on our behalf and his work on the cross for us. We thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and also the resurrection that is guaranteed to all who have believed upon him. Thank you for a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and is able to come to our aid. We thank you for one who is powerful and loving and compassionate and sympathetic. We thank you that our God was not untouched by our infirmities and the weaknesses and the realities of this sinful world. We believe that the presence of death in this world hurts your heart more than it even hurts ours. And you see far more of that painful reality than we would ever hope to see or ever could see. And we thank you, Father, that none of it escapes your notice and that you will bring judgment upon those who do evil and who do wickedness. And we thank you that these realities are not sufficient to overthrow our faith and our trust in you and in your word. We thank you for our glorious and and excellent and perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.